So as I wrap up my preaching duties here at In Town in the next uh, few weeks, which is a strange thing to say, um, I get to kind of preach on what I want to preach on. Uh, we're not in the middle of uh, a series per se. Maybe it's the series of all of Brian's favorite passages that I get to preach on. And as I was thinking this week about um, what to uh, preach on, Genesis 3 popped into mind. Uh, the first three books, or first three chapters rather, of Genesis are some of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. And uh, when we looked at and studied Genesis about eight years ago as a church, it was one of my, my favorite series that I could remember. Now in Genesis 3, which uh, was read a, a few moments ago, we get to sort of overhear a conversation. One of the most significant conversations in all of world history, as it turns out. And we sort of know the characters. One of the characters is, of course, Eve. And the other is uh, the serpent, who was, as the writer tells us, more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. Now, we have a certain understanding of this word crafty. And it's sort of can mean shrewd, but there can also be this kind of underlying negative assessment as we use that word. Now, it's only used once here in all of Genesis, but and here it's meant to subtly undermine God's intentions, but it's used a total of eight times in the Proverbs, and they're all positive. It means crafty or shrewd or having street smarts, street wisdom, as it were. It's knowledge about how the world and the human nature works. So crafty would be like a car salesman who knows what the customer really wants. Let me put you in this car that you didn't know that you needed before coming in today. You look great in this car and we'll even finance it for you to make it more affordable. The serpent has street smarts, and Eve just doesn't. Now, think about why we choose to lie, why we choose behavior that we know ultimately is going to harm us. None of us lie because we know that life will fall apart once our lie, lie is discovered. None of us commit adultery because we know that we'll be found out and lose our family. None of us would agree to drink something that we knew was poisonous. Of course not. And it seems that the serpent knows us all too well. So he changes the terms. Instead of the command being a healthy boundary, a guardrail, and just tempting them to try going beyond it, what the serpent does is he plays upon Eve's pride and hubris. God won't let you play with all the toys, is what the serpent is telling her. And you deserve, Eve, to play with all the toys. The fruit 
opens up a whole new dimension of life that God doesn't want you to enjoy. He doesn't want you to have the fullness of the good life. Because if you eat of this, you will be like him. You will see things as he does. And you deserve that, Eve. You see, he's shrewd. He's crafty. He doesn't tempt her with overt rebellion. Let's overthrow the king. What he puts in front of her is an opportunity to be discontent. Like many of us, Eve wasn't able to trust God to provide all of what she needed. She wasn't sure that God had her best interest in mind. And so her thought in this moment, like our thought in many moments, is I got to take what is mine or what should be mine. I've got to throw my arms around this and hold on tight because there's no one there that is going to provide for me and protect me and my interests. See, this story that we're reading, this conversation that we're overhearing, it it really isn't about talking snakes and whether they existed. It isn't really about a systematic theology of how sin entered the world. It's all about wisdom and how to live in God's world on his terms. The boundaries which God set up for the man and woman to flourish in, which seemed only a moment ago like a given, like gravity, these boundaries are now being scrutinized as though they are optional or perhaps even harmful. What God has said is now open to analysis and calculation and criticism. The givenness of God's rule is no longer seen as a boundary of safety, but it's an unfair denial of happiness. And therefore, it becomes, in Eve's mind, a barrier to be circumvented. So a story of love and trust and submission and care now becomes a story of crime and of punishment. And just like Raskolnikov and Dostoevsky's novel, who begins to hear what is not there, imaginary voices and threats. Adam and Eve, they do find autonomy of a sort. They're liberated to pursue what they want, but instead of freedom, they get shame, they get guilt, guilt, they get imagined threats. Now, we know from previous readings, I'm sure, that death was the promised result of violating God's boundaries. Surely, if you eat of it, you will die. But instead of immediate termination of life, they experience something very different, but rather deadly. They experience nakedness for the very first time. They experience shame. They experience a desire to hide. And the temporary absence of God combined with all of these things is certainly a form of death. It's them dying to this beautiful world. And all of this happens really before God himself takes any action, as if to say that sin is its own punishment. 
they believed, Eve and then Adam later believed a big lie. Maybe we could say the big lie. Propagated through a very deadly thought experiment. The serpent, the crafty, shrewd serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And this is where maybe we would want to insert one of those emojis with the raised hand. Wait, wait a minute. That's not what he said, is it? You can eat from every tree except one. That's very different than you must not eat from any tree in the garden. But Eve then cuts him off and she clarifies the command. And we as a reader are thinking, okay, she sees it. She sees what he's trying to do. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you, and you must not touch it or you will die. But wait a minute, that's not what God said either. She adds that they're not to touch it. No one seems to be paying much attention or rather the serpent is paying very good attention. And he uses his ability to manipulate, to distort the situation, to make Eve do something that none of us think that she should have done. The lies of the serpent, his distortion has set before the couple a, a destiny of competition, of vulnerability like they've never known before. But the distortion has set their minds to work. If, if he has kept anything from us, then how can we trust him to give us what we really need? They wanted to be street smart like the serpent. Trust, you see, is for suckers. How can you expect us to live by faith when there's this tree over there with all of the answers and all of the certainty and everything that we need to know to feel comfortable, to feel safe? It's right there. Why can't we take and eat of it? And so rather than trust the goodness of God, they choose control. Rather than wisdom, they choose knowledge. Now they know more than they possibly could have wanted to know. And there's nowhere to hide. There's no place to run. They're naked. One thing, thing that is peculiar to small children that we're thankful that they grow out of as they grow up is that when they're young, they don't mind wandering around the house or even the front yard not fully dressed or even stark naked. There's this window of time where a child might understand that being naked is different because they find it a little bit funny, but to them it's not uncomfortable. It's just normal. This is their body. They don't yet have the experience. They don't have the street smarts to know that this is not how everyone walks around for a reason. People feel naked unclothed, not just physically naked, but 
revealed. They feel vulnerable. But small children don't have that experience. They don't have the street smarts. They're not shrewd and crafty about the world. They're naked and therefore they know no shame. But the same kid a few years later will never let anyone see them naked, not even their parents. What was funny a few years ago is now utterly terrifying. And you see, friends, I think that what we can see at the bottom of this story is that that's the experience of human life that God is trying to prevent, that he is trying to keep his first children from experiencing and ever experiencing. It's not that he wants his creatures to be eternal children. It's that he wants to spare them from gaining street smarts in ways that will harm them. He wants them to grow wise in ways that will cause them ultimately to flourish and to be happy. And part of that happiness is learning to trust the God who is in control, the God who can create, the God who knows them better than they know themselves. But they, like we often do, choose the path of least resistance. They violate the terms of service and God then questions them about it. And their response to God is very telling. It's very revealing because it's all about I. I heard. I was afraid. I was naked. I did. I ate. And their answer indicts them because the garden was not meant to be about I. Instead of I and me, there was meant to be mutuality and equality, a community of mutual belonging and support where the husband and the wife pursue God's purpose side by side. But you see, now there's competition, there's jockeying for position, and there's blaming. That woman you gave me, that serpent, he tricked me. So how will the gardener respond? Will he follow through on the sort of minimum sentencing guidelines that were established just before the violation? As it turns out, God has something else in mind, a third way, as it were. There are clearly consequences, but God restrains what the punishment could be. It's in, in one way less than what was promised because they walk free, alive, together. But as they walk out of the garden, wherever they go, the specter of death follows them and hangs over the heads of them as well as their offspring and those who will come after them. But while they are banished from the garden, Notice that the garden is not closed off and God stays there. God leaves too. He doesn't stay behind inaccessible to them, but he goes with them into this now dangerous world. And this is why we read Paul riffing on this chapter in his letter to the Romans, telling us that by one man came death, but the good news is that life 
and grace comes through one God, Yahweh, the God of the garden. The sentence of death is fulfilled in a verdict of life apart from the goodness of the garden, but not apart from the goodness of God himself. The curse is a life in conflict with one another. It is filled with pain and sweat, and most interestingly, the distortion of desire, but it is nonetheless life, even where death is called for, even where death is warranted, God grants life. God insists on life. You see, this is not simply the story of human disobedience and divine displeasure. It's rather a story about God interjecting grace where we expect to find wrath. You see, a rule can be circumvented, but as it turns out, the love of God cannot. You cannot circumvent his love and care. And thus the sentence that is given contains a surprise. The cursed ones are actually protected. The one who gives the rule is also the one who gives grace. When the sentence is given, God does for the couple what they cannot do for themselves. They cannot deal with their shame, but God can and will, and he does. To be clothed in any culture is to be given what? It's to be given dignity. It's to be protected from the elements. It's a form of care. And God tenderly provides for their new experience of nakedness and shame and vulnerability to the elements. The couple must finally live on God's terms, but they come to realize that his terms are not primarily about prohibition, but about provision and about promise, a promise to undo what they've done and even undo the harm that they've brought on themselves. The Lord, we are told in verse 21, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. What does this mean? It means there were indeed consequences. They were expelled from both the delights as well as the danger of the garden. Why? Because in the garden, the tree of life remained there. They were made to live forever, but not on a despoiled and cursed earth. You see, as an act of kindness, God will not let them live forever in the pain and the conflict that now marks the world. Immortality in that state would be a never-ending form of death. And so strangely, even our premature deaths 
even if they're at 80 or 90 or 100, are a form of mercy. And so God sends them away from the tree of life to a life of faith in God's fundamental goodness and to trust in his promise of ultimate renewal. But they will come ultimately to another tree of sorts, to the cross, where we see God's ultimate disposition toward us and his tangible action to the renew the world in the person and the work of his son, Jesus, restoring ultimately God's earth to the goodness that it was designed to hold. Once again, here at the cross, the world's sin is met by the God of the third way, that sin is far more deadly and destructive than we could ever know. And God takes it seriously. But his actions toward us aren't punitive. They are restorative. For at the cross, we are not banished, but we are rescued. And God promises to go with us and be with us forever. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the great promises of the gospel. Believing that the gospel is, is not just a few sentences contained in the gospels, but it is the good news that permeates all of scripture that begins right here in Genesis, in the very beginning pages that we get to see the unfolding of your promises of redemption throughout the whole of scripture and even up until this very day. So, Father, would you give us eyes to see? We long for it to come true fully and to be present. But, Father, would you give us glimpses as we still wait? Would you give us the imagination to see that you are at work, that you are doing enormous things to bring forth goodness and justice and salvation? And so, Father, help us to long to be a part of it, not just to see it in our own lives or to notice it, but to, in fact, be bold enough to imagine ourselves as your instruments bringing forth this goodness, this restoration. And let us be people who do not bring punitive measures upon others in overt ways or subtle ways. But, Father, let us bring kindness. Let us bring restoration. Let us bring the liberality of love to all of the people that we interact in on a daily basis. Let us do so as individuals. Let us do so as your church. And we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.